Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, the Deputy Editor of Proceedings Magazine, retired Navy Captain Bill Hamlet. Bill, welcome back to the show. Hey, Ward. It's great to be here today, and we've got a special guest with us today. We've got uh, Lieutenant Jared Seuss, a Navy SEAL, who is a uh, instructor in the English Department at the at the Naval Academy, and also a proceedings author, a new proceedings author. So, uh, great to great to see everybody in Facebook land. Um, so we're going to talk about Jared's article here in a, in a short bit. We are. But first, we have uh, I guess you'd call it breaking news, right? Yeah, um, big the, news today is that the Navy's report on the McCain and Fitzgerald collisions is out. Uh, signed by the CNO, it's uh, about 70 pages long. There's a lot to digest in it. Uh, it's uh, As a naval officer, it's, uh, it's a bit heartbreaking to read, but it doesn't have too many surprises other than the fact, uh, you know, sort of the details of, uh, you know, how the collisions uh, actually took place. Uh, but right up front, it says uh, in the opening paragraph, the collisions were avoidable between USS Fitzgerald and motor vessel ACX Crystal and between USS John S. McCain and motor vessel Alnick MC. Uh, and then, you know, we, we talked about this a bit uh, over the last few weeks because it's been a topic on everybody's mind in the Navy, uh, those two collisions and some of the other incidents that have happened in the surface force, particularly out in, in Westpac. Uh, over the past year, uh, and and you were a safety officer, and you uh, wrote for Approach Magazine, and and spent a lot of time your naval, avi- naval aviation magazine. career focused on s- safety issues, and you know, uh, big calamitous, you know, Class A mishaps don't happen unless several different error. Uh, you know, holes in the Swiss cheese sort of a line, and and that's why we ha- we call them mishaps instead of uh, accidents, right? Accidents. Uh, implies it it couldn't the chain of events couldn't have been stopped um, and mishaps uh, is is chosen by the naval safety program the navy's safety program uh, you know for a very expressed reason so just to highlight some of the findings and I know you have a bunch highlighted there in the a, a printout I'm I'm looking at the uh, digitized uh, one at usni.org I'm sorry, uh, at at USNI News. So Sam and his team were uh, first with the news as usual uh, late yesterday. But if you look at, for instance, on the Fitzgerald, um, they list different attributes. And and one is leadership culture and the other is the seamanship and navigation piece. So with respect to Fitzgerald, the findings, and I'm looking now, Bill, at paragraph 8.2 in the Fitzgerald part, um, they itemize some things that jump right out at you. So you know, instead of, I don't want to read, uh, you know, the, the I, I entreat the audience to, to go and check this, uh, this out, but there's a few things um, that you have highlighted there. So uh, why don't you read a few of those things? Because really with the Fitzgerald, the OOD particularly uh, was, uh, was uh, let's just say, to be polite about it, uh, at fault. Um, and, and if you have to point to a singular um, person on the bridge that could have prevented the mishap, I think in this case, and this is different than what happened with McCain, but in this case, um, you can point to the OD. So what, what were some of the things um, that, that you can, uh, or that they list there? Yeah. So just to remind people, this is a collision that happened uh, near uh, Tokyo Bay coming into Tokyo. Um, and uh, it's middle of the night, about 1.30 in the morning. 
So uh, the, the uh, findings of the report say that you know, Fitzgerald officers possessed an unsatisfactory level of knowledge of international rules of the road. Um, the Fitzgerald was not operated at a safe speed appropriate to the number of other ships in the immediate vicinity. Which is to say they were going, they started at 16 knots and he sped up to 20 knots. 20 knots. In the face of a lot of traffic density. Traffic separation scheme, yeah. very, very busy traffic area around Tokyo Wan. Uh, Fitzgerald failed to maneuver early as required with risk of collision present. Fitzgerald failed to notify other ships of danger and to take appropriate action in extremis. Uh, watchstanders, this is this was one that jumped out. Watchstanders performing physical lookout duties did so only on Fitzgerald's port side, not on the starboard side of the ship, where three ships were present with risk of collision. Um, and and throughout the the specifically this um, the Fitzgerald report, there's a number of times when in the timeline leading up in the 30 minutes or so before the collision, when Ships got well within 10,000 yards of the ship, and the OOD did not wake the captain, captain up. Uh, you know, numerous times ships actually passed within 1,500 yards, 3,000 yards, and the, the, the CO was not woken up. So the CO's asleep. Uh, he's in his, in his stateroom, and lots of things are happening. Uh, decisions are being made or not made, and the, the CO is not alerted to those things. In bad comms between the radar plot team and the bridge, uh, a bunch of things that, uh, you know, and as we're saying here, a chain of events leads to a very tragic mishap. Um, what you'll see in both of these mishaps is uh, on the backside of the collision, the damage control uh, teams do pretty well, and what is inarguable is the heroism and the sense of saving shipmates in, in on the part of both crews are are really really um, uh, laudable. Uh, you know, so bad to get themselves into these mishap situations. In the case of Fitzgerald, seven shipmates were lost. In the case of McCain, ten shipmates were lost. Um, but there was some real heroism in getting uh, people out of harm's way, and and you read those passages, and it really does read like a you know like a, a novel in terms of uh, the the, the extremists and the danger and what people were passed out and 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 they they were rescued after they they ingested water and all kinds of stuff you know? swimming in flooded compartments swimming to and light shipmates of a, just not giving right. up not giving up on other shipmates so right. that that's that's the one sort of silver lining in, in both of these uh, mishap reports. Definitely, definitely. So uh, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot for our audience to digest as they can go on to news.usni.org and find the, that report. They can also find it but just by Googling it on the Internet. Uh, but the, the report was made public by the Navy today. That's the Davidson report that we've been expecting from Fleet Forces Command, signed off by the CNO today and, and saying right up front, both collisions were preventable uh, well before just, we leave the topic though yeah. just to talk about McCain right because McCain was significantly different in the what what you had there was a systems failure and a, and either a lack of understanding on how the helm versus Lee helm worked um, so it was less of an OOD's judgment than it was um, a misanalysis of what the situation was with the Lee helm so this one's pretty hairy. Um, and what happened basically is the ship rounded up very rapidly uh, and was hit from behind by another commercial ship um, because it kind of rounded up into the path of that ship. Um, so that 
I I don't know, uh, not being a surface warfare officer, I don't know uh, how that Lee Helm works on a uh, on that class of destroyer. But basically, the captain gave an order to the helmsman to because he wasn't happy with him sharing duties between being helm and Lee helm. So they split the duties um, and he gave a command. Um, let me see if I can find it in the, the summer here. Um, basically saying, you know, go to the, the, the backup configuration. And when you do that, um, that causes some things in terms of the system to, uh, to be different than they are if they're working uh, via the, the normal mode. And so the helmsman didn't realize that he didn't have control and, and what he thought he had when he commanded something and it didn't respond was a material failure, but he did not. The, the ship was not broken. Right. It was just configured wrong. Because um, the first rumors I'd heard from the AOR was that the ship had a material failure, a casualty. It did not. So that's even worse, that this is right. the crew misdiagnosing the configuration they have steering set up in. And so they thought the, the helm was commanded, the rudder was commanded neutral, and it was commanded 30 degrees to port. And so this ship, and plus they had the right screw going at 20 knots and the other one was at idle. Um, so you can imagine this created quite a turn uh, roundup that caused it to, to steer into the path of that other ship. So that's a huge mistake. CO was on the bridge. CO was on the bridge. In command, uh, took took the con, although did not uh, formally say that he took the con. Uh, but the CO made the order to switch to uh, divide the helm and Lee helm because the helmsman, when he was controlling both positions, was having difficulty staying on track. Uh, so the CO ordered that. Uh, uh, that those two positions shift, and then the Lee Helm uh, thought he had a, a casualty, did not have a casualty. Um, because the helm wasn't responding. But the helm right? wasn't he responding. He didn't realize it wasn't configured the way that yes. they thought it was. They, at one point, they switched to after steering. Um, they also had uh, some watchstanders on the ship who came over from a cruiser. Right. Uh, which had a different the configuration. Antietam. Right, from they the came Antietam, from Antietam. Which had a different configuration yeah. and, and we're not trained to the point that they should have been trained yeah. uh, operating on a DDG versus a cruiser. So, yeah. uh, th- you know, again, it's one of those things, lots of different small errors line up and you get a tragic mishap. Yeah. And then huge errors in close, small errors in turn, training, op tempo, um, crew atmosphere um, or command atmosphere, these sorts of things. And then in close uh, I- improper reaction to extremist situations. So, um, you know, there are no new mishaps, just new people doing the same old mishaps, and this report proves proves that out. All right, so let's shift uh, to the current issue of proceedings that just came out. This is uh, our, uh, the November issue is our Marine Corps issue, very cool cover. Um, badass uh, wearing his shemag there, you know, very, uh, very AOR uh, Afghanistan cool guy look. Um so, uh, and I, I love this issue. Um, I, I think uh, Bill, you and your team did a fantastic job on this particular issue. Um, so I want to direct um, the audience uh, that is just now probably getting it in their mailbox to a couple of articles, w- one in particular. Um, this article by Lieutenant Commander uh, C. Randolph Whips 
called It's Time for Concealed Carry on Base. Um, this, uh, I think, is going to get a lot of attention. Uh, so, uh, again, a demonstration of the Independent Forum of the Sea Services tackling issues like this. Um, so I, I know you'll be hearing from the, the people as we go forward here. Perhaps we can get uh, Commander Whips on the show in future weeks. Um, the other great. He's, he's written for us before as well uh, in 2017. So this is uh, just a, a new piece from him. We knew that it would be uh, that it would get a lot of attention. Uh, you know, his his point is there's a lot of uh, you know violence, uh, gun violence happening in America. Um, a lot of sailors have got uh, you know very very good firearms training and are you know could have uh, the, the permission to conceal carry. Um, he points to the um, terrorist incident, the army major uh, who shot um, soldiers Fort on Fort Hood about uh, what was it, seven eight years ago. Um, and that that could have prevent, been prevented or stopped um, by soldiers or uh, you know military service members who had concealed carry permits on base. So it's it's an interesting piece. It it uh, definitely takes what is uh, a controversial stance on a on a tough issue. Um, but we we decided uh, that it was done well. It was done professionally. It was done thoughtfully, and we published it. Another article by Petty Officer Second Class Nicholas Harrison called Navy Training Should Be a Baptism of Fire. Um, that's a, uh, uh, it's in the From the Deck Plates section. We love to see writers from all parts of the rank structure. Uh, we actually have a Lance Corporal who wrote in this issue as well, a fantastic article. We have a Midshipman First Class who wrote in this issue. Um, but this one is uh, particularly uh I don't know. Is he suggesting that uh, Navy training as is is not tough enough? Is that what he says here? Yeah, that's that's the point. Um, you know that a lot of people talk about millennials. Everybody gets a gets a you know prize. Hashtag feelings. Everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> uh, and and this was one that uh, you know Sailor came forward saying that that he found uh, he found uh, going through boot camp was not as hard as he thought it would be or, or thought it should be. So, um, you know, it, this is a, a theme that we've talked about a number of times. We've got a Navy SEAL in the, uh, here with us today who might want to comment on this. Uh, that, but, but we know that General Mattis has made making the force more lethal a, a significant focus of what he's doing as a Secretary of Defense. So, uh, there, and that comes through throughout a number of articles here uh, in the November issue of proceedings. So, um, so in future weeks we'll talk about other articles, uh, but now we want to turn our focus to our in-studio guest. Um, we're very blessed to have Lieutenant Jared Seuss with us. Jared uh, is here on the faculty of the Naval Academy, um, and. Uh, Welcome to the show, Jared. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background and how uh, how you arrived here. Uh, so I came in the Navy in 1999, and uh, I was an enlisted sailor back. Was your rate? Corman. You were uh, a corman. Yeah. Okay. So this was before we had the SO rating. I think the SO rating came in 2006. So I was a an HM1 at the time, and then the day after I became an SO1. Okay. So, so okay. you were a SEAL corpsman and then became an SO1. Correct, and I went yep. through 18 Delta, which is the uh, Army Special Operations Forces uh, medic course, but 
any special operations goes through it. Okay. So at what point did you do you say, okay, I want to be a SEAL? What? How does that go? You know, my students ask me that all the time, and I, you know, Gore Vidal said we have a everyone is entitled to their concept of history. So it's a bit of me trying to recall back, and you know. I, I know I saw the movie with Charlie Sheen. Maybe. Oh, what a great flick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Him jumping off the bridge. <laughs> maybe that had an I was stationed at Oceana when that went down. Um, so, yeah, I remember Charlie Sheen arcing around Virginia Beach. Just Notorious, you know, yeah. Going method acting. Yes, like method acting. Yeah, writing it as he went kind of a thing, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I, and, you know, I'm not being flippant about the question, right, because I'm genuinely... This, it was in the 90s, right? It was pre-9-11 yeah. before all of our lives changed, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, really didn't know what SEALs did. I just thought it was probably pretty cool. Okay, So, yep. So I, I enlisted. And how, how, You went how, down to the recruiting station and said, hey, I think I want to be a SEAL, and sign on the dotted line, and off you went to Bud's? And right, I knew college wasn't for me at the time, um, as I think... Most SEALs are not the ones that come from the Naval Academy. They're obviously put together, you know, a little better, but um, we're kind of misfits. You know? <laughs> so um, we need some leadership and direction in our in our lives, right? We're not not ready to to deal it out, if that makes any so sense. So everybody has a bud story. Was was it harder than you thought? Was it exactly what you thought? Um, how would you, if I'm a, a midshipman and, and you go, sir, how, how hard was Bud's really? What would you, how, how do, I know you get that question all the time. So how do you answer that question? Um, I think what I say is, uh, well, to answer your question directly is the, yes, it was every bit as hard as I expected. It certainly wasn't easier. Um, but if, if you chop up each moment and were to extrapolate some sort of feeling from that experience, it would be misery. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow you compile all these moments of misery, and the output is happiness. So um, that's usually what I tell my students. And some, what did you say we were going to go esoteric? We're, we're going esoteric, yeah. yeah. So uh, just to synopsize your your uh, fleet experience. What team and, and where did where did you go? Um, so I was on the West Coast for uh, the majority, well, all of my enlisted time, and then switched to the East Coast uh, for my uh, you know, once I was commissioned um, in 2011, and uh, been quite literally around the world, uh, whether through training uh, or actual missions um but you know the majority iraq afghanistan so back to your point about points of misery adding up to something that makes you happy right mm -hmm. so i was listening to an interview with uh, mike mike i think it was michael kelly the astronaut who spent a year in space on the international space station he used a term that i had not heard before but i, I thought it was wonderful he, he called it type two happiness Right. So he said his year on the on the space station was uh, just an incredible amount of work. It was very difficult. 
it's a it's a you know constantly being in a foreign environment uh you know there's work to do 24 7 you're away from your family you're in danger you're constantly worried about what might go wrong on this you know thin little spaceship that you're circling around the world you know thousands of miles an hour uh, so he called it type two happiness which was when it was all said and done he was really happy he'd done it you know in minute by minute it was really hard uh, and he said you know compared to you know, type one happiness is where you're on the roller coaster with your kids, you're eating cotton candy at, you know, Bush Gardens. That's type one happiness. Type two happiness is when you work really, really hard and you, you know, you're miserable, you know, for much of it. But afterwards, you look back and you say, yeah, that was awesome. I, I just thought that was, you know, yeah, was that's philosophical. That, that's said much better than how I said it. So <laughs> if, if I can plagiarize there. Uh, I guess I'll take it. Yeah, as long as you identify it as plagiarism, yeah, you can right. you can do it wantonly and with with impunity. Um, so the article in uh, the current issue of Proceedings that uh, Jared wrote is called "The Books I Carried." So obviously riff, riffing on Tim O'Brien there uh, and the things they carried, uh, which is a fantastic fantastic book. Just beautiful. Completely agree. Beautiful book. Um, so what what got you from Seal to the English department, the Naval Academy. So I've always been uh, an enormous fan of literature. Um, that was never anything new. It's not as if I, you know, was in my mid twenties and just started reading literature. I mean, I think I've read The Great Gatsby over a hundred times. You know, a segue. I spent, you know, a lot of my adult life apologizing for that being my favorite book but i've got to a place <laughs> in my life where i'm not apologizing yeah, anymore yeah. it's it's just that good yeah. and that's that's how i feel about it um but uh yes yeah, so i've always been in touch with literature and um i guess i've always just appreciated its therapeutic value which is what i i hope is the main argument in the piece if there is one um, that comes across so uh, yeah that it does come across for sure and we'll talk specifically about Hemingway here uh, as we go on but the Naval Academy is primarily an engineering school um, the Navy is primarily a very technical um, I mean kinetic interface not with sanding but uh, it, it's it's technical even at, at the, the most uh, uh, you know the tip of the spear, there, there is some level of technology required, whether it's comm suite or weapons or whatever, um, reading an ATO. But there is a place in uh, any military leader's um, sort of makeup for, um, for the humanities. Uh, and and uh, so this is where an English instructor like you really... Uh, can make a difference by connecting the dots in a way that isn't self-evident uh, to midshipmen necessarily, right? Um, so, what what are some of the methodologies that uh, that you put into play with that challenge? So, you're really going to allow me to plug the English department here. Yes, this, this is good. Um, so, uh, a mantra in the SEAL teams is shoot, move, and communicate, and uh, I like to say around there. It's not shoot, move, and do physics. It's not shoot, move, and do calculus. 
not shoot move differential equations basically you know create the blank and then you know fill in the gap it's to communicate and you know the question is often asked what do you guys do over in the english department well i like to think it's, it's about communication right and it's what I guarantee my students, right? I, I mean, I can't guarantee if they'll go to war. I can't guarantee if they'll see combat. Um, but I can guarantee they'll communicate. Um, and uh, that's what we work on. That's what we try and do. And I, I think I've certainly gleaned that over my life. And, um, you know, I do have a master's degree in English. So somebody thinks I'm from, from Georgetown. qualified. Yeah, yeah. From Georgetown. Not um, just any school, yeah. But, uh, you know, in that sense, I, I think my SEAL experience is what gives me the ability to uh, teach communication in that sense. So when you were on the team, um, did you have to, uh, maybe this is overstating it, hide that you were uh, a literary guy? Because uh, I kind of had to do that in, in a fighter squadron, right? It, you, you didn't want to be the, oh, you're the reader guy, right? Is there was there any of that in uh, you get a call something like teams? Plato or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Uh, it's well, it's funny both bring up those points because you know, and I, again, I hope if the article does anything, it's it's if there's a wall there, um, you know, as McCain said recently, we should be tearing down walls, not putting them up. Amen. Um, you know, I, I, if there is a such a wall, or the, you, you know, you sh one should not be able to be literary. I, I think we should tear that wall down yeah um but uh no my my call sign as it were nickname was the professor um and and i think it's for those reasons is not, that not dr seuss but professor it, seuss. it certainly was yeah. doctor when i was a corpsman but i think that's what i would do i would always be reading um fiction mostly right uh and then I would relate whatever circumstance we were in at the time. Um, you know, so, oh, it's no different than, uh, you know, Daisy was experiencing in, in The Great Gatsby, if that makes sense. I like it. I, I, I still remember from uh, Plebe English uh, here at the Naval Academy 30-something years ago, uh, reading and, and uh, studying and thinking about the Catch-22. Um, and, and that... You know, passages from that book have resonated with me throughout my career because there is a great deal of absurdity, you know, in a large organization like the Navy or the Department of Defense, uh, you know, being deployed around the world and sometimes not knowing exactly why you are there. Uh, I remember a strike group commander telling us in 1998 as we rushed to the Persian Gulf, you know, hey, guys, I don't know why we're here either. <laughs> And that, that you know, I, I recalled Catch-22, like, okay, I, I get this. I, I can live with this uh, uncertainty for a certain amount of time because others have as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why I was drawn to it because I would teach because when I taught English here, first semester was novels and the second semester, I think, is poetry. And if they still do it that way, the difference between 111 and 112. But I remember going in because I wasn't an English major. Um, and just going in to talk to the department chair, and I'm like, so what is the syllabus, right? What, like they're going to hand me a, and they, well, they said, well, whatever you want it to be. I'm like, whoa, it just blew me away. You know, so it was basically Ward's favorite books is what my, uh, so I did teach Catch-22 for the reasons you say, and I would also read Catch-22 
during the translant before every deployment to set the tone for the absurdity, you know. Um, but your article, Jared, talks about Hemingway. What, what about Hemingway particularly um, it, it, it jumps out? What, why are you drawn to Hemingway? Yeah, well, let me just respond to uh, what you just said there because I, I felt entirely the same way. It's like you're really giving me the keys to the castle yeah, here. Yeah. Um, so that I know what that's like, and um, you know, in my second year there, you find that certain books work at this institution that um, you know perhaps other ones do not. But uh, and it's for that reason. You know, I was just saying the other day in class, um, um, to your point, Bill, about you know, why I don't know why we're going here. Um, have you read Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift, and remember what the Lilliputians are fighting over it's, it's I don't which, know it's which side of the egg to crack it on the the larger the small right so I mean little things you know where satire I think work well where people can get lost and you know may, maybe it doesn't matter why we're here but um, we're here so let's let's deal in that situation and um, yeah little tidbits like that I think I think function for those of us that will have to see war. Um, yeah, I remember that strike group commander, who, you know, who was pointing out the absurdity at the time. Uh, he sort of ended on the same thought, which was a Chesty Puller quote about, you know, from North Korea, from the, you know, the Korean War, where he said, "We're uh, we're here for each other," and and that was the bottom line. Like, okay, we're, we're all going to get through this. We're going to get each other back from this. We're going to bring all our jets. All our ships, all our aircraft, all our sailors, we're all going to come home from this deployment however long it takes, um, but we're here for each other. And I well, that, it's funny you say that because um, little Naval Institute trivia. So the first novel ever published by the Naval Institute, as I think we've pointed out here before, was Hunt for Red October. The second novel was, anyone? Flight of the Intruder. Flight of the Intruder. Okay, so by... Our good friend Stephen Kuntz, A6 pilot, Vietnam era. Do you know what the original title was for Flight of the Intruder? I don't. For each other. Wow. For the very reason that you state. Um, and uh, he thought it was literary and, and so forth and so on. And so he, he was uh, uh, very big on, okay, that book would not have sold as well had he kept that title. So when I showed him the manuscript um, for my debut... I was calling it What Punks Do, which is, again, it was an illusion about, you know, at the end game when the exo is giving him this sort of, are you going to stay in or get out? He basically entreated him to say that you may be having this running gun battle with the current skipper, but you've got to accept that this is what guys like you do in terms of a profession. So I was calling it What Punks Do. It's called Science Punk. I showed that Stephen Kunst, he said, that title sucks. You should call it Punk's War. So, you know, that, that he learned the hard way um, about titles. And, and uh, so anyway, that's, when you said for each other, it reminded me that Stephen Kunst's book, uh, original manuscript, yeah, the good, original title for good bit of trivia. what ultimately was like Flight it. of the Intruder. I, I like from, from Jared's piece here, there's a photo of your, uh, your camis with a copy of Hemingway's In Our Time uh, you know, in your in your pants pocket, and uh, that instead of loading up a Kindle with books, uh, that you actually brought hard copy hard copy books with you, because there's something about the texture and being able to pull it out, and you know, whenever you had some downtime in Afghanistan, uh, to read and reflect, and 
That's, I, I particularly like that that uh, that bit of it, and the picture is rather poignant as well. So again, talking Hemingway particularly, um, because the last part of your article deals specifically on Hemingway and elements of masculinity and that sort of thing. So help the the uh, the unlearned, and maybe somebody who's about to go on a deployment, and and this could be a spark for a, a, a venture into a more literary, a more well-rounded uh, reading um, program, right? Um, so why, why would they, of all, uh, in a blank slate of possible authors, why would, why would a warfighter choose Hemingway? So, I mean, I could go on all day about Hemingway and uh, Fitzgerald probably, you know, my, and I mentioned Fitzgerald in the piece as well, but... Um, you know, certainly my two favorite authors, but uh, I think, so I'll make an argument, I'll try and cut that short and, and make an argument for in our time specifically, right? This is the work that I reference uh, in the piece. It's a collection of short stories, and they're all separated uh, by little vignettes that are italicized and... Um, so it functions, it's like a piece of equipment in a lot of ways. It's light, right? You know, the the lighter a gun has, you know, it, it can have its efficiencies um, that, you know, that make it a good piece of equipment. Um, and then there's things that it lacks. But for me, it packs the punch, right? There, there's an arc uh, if you look for it, um, right? There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you just kind of have to decipher it. Um we could go on, but, you know, I mean, people always like to go uh, biographical with Hemingway. I, I tend not to like to do that, you know. Uh, he did experience war. Um, you know, there's the cliche, you know, every man has a novel in them if he tells his story true. I don't know if you've heard this one, right, but it's often attributed to Ernest Hemingway. And, um I think you see that in there. You, you know what he's saying is true. There's something very real about it and something very tactile about it, and that's why I like the feel of that work. Was there a, an episode or a, a, you know, an operation uh, that you participated in in Afghanistan or something, an event in Afghanistan during your time there uh, that, that resonated with a specific vignette in, in our time? Was there... You know, something that happened that made you reflect or go to that, as you said, a piece of gear, right, that you carried with you um, that, that helped you, that, that that book helped you to, uh, you know, get past or to uh, to process. Um, absolutely. It's, you know, and this may sound a bit strange to some of your audience, um, but you know, lots of people carry things. You know, I mean, we already talked about Tim O'Brien's book, right? Um, there's no... I mean, a lot. You can look at an individual, and of course, there's the similarities, right? There's the the requisite items that one must carry. But I, I sort of treat it no different than uh, you know a picture, or you know, some people carry a Bible, I suppose, right? Uh, that was mine, and not all the stories are about war, so I t tend to view it uh, almost like a novel. Um, you know, and I reference Indian camp. That's a particular story in the piece. Um, that one certainly, I think, has the most effect and impact on me. 
and it's because it's that childhood it's it's hearkening back to how did i get here right what what moments in my life brought me to this point and then you know how does that inform how i make decisions live life so um well, I mean, that, this goes back to your point about Hemingway having experienced war, having seen people die, um, the, the, the grisly part of it. Um, and, and so the, not to do spoilers about what you talk about in the article, um, but you describe the, the character, young boy Nick, who, who asks his father, uh, is dying easy? Um, and so the answer's both um, in a literary sense, it, it has a lot of breathing room. It's, it's, it's airy, but it's also, um, there's, there's a, a wisdom to the answer he gives. Um, and somebody with less experience m- might give a more linear answer to that. And uh, so that, I think that, that's what, you know, people drawn to, literature like the fact that they're the it's not a specific like a singular answer that happens in dialogue but a question introduces more questions kind of a thing and the reader has to kind of figure it out and and i know when i'm writing fiction my first tendency is to be too linear you know a a guy would ask is dying easy and you'd say well no or yes it is all you have to do is die you know um and and uh you know dying's easy living's hard or something cute like that but he says it depends and you know he talks about suicide and some other other things and so it's all about the context which introduces some complexities that are you have to leverage Hemingway's experience to to get there right to your point absolutely that's yeah spot on uh you know Hemingway is familiar often familiarized with uh, the theory of omission or also called the iceberg theory right so it, it's not necessarily what's in the text, it's what's not in there. And so just as you say, the questions born out of questions, well, you know, and you, you're talking about earlier, Bill, about the, uh, the piece of, uh, you know, are the millennials to be trusted? Um, is boot camp hard? Well, it was hard for me because, you know, I got a Red Cross message, my mother was dying of cancer so I had to you know respond to that I'll never forget that moment uh yeah boot camp was hard right and that's how I reflect on those little decisions is dying hard daddy sometimes right yeah not to go too personal there no no I mean but that's what it the literature means for me so so but if you can make the connection with the mid so I are you teaching all four years here or what 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 classes are you teaching right now what years so I uh everybody in the department teaches two plebe English courses right that's the um freshmen for those not yeah (laughs) right every freshman is required to take two years unless you validate and then only one okay um and then uh one upper division okay and so I, i'm currently teaching it's called types of fiction and i do a lost generation theme in there what is that what does that mean uh lost generation so well in the sun also rises um one of ernest hemingway's epigraphs is uh he quotes gertrude stein uh 
as you are all a lost generation. What does that mean? Do Do you want me to? Yeah. Go, go esoteric. Go. Here? Go. Um, this is the proceedings podcast. We do esoteric. Uh, Our audience demands it. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's this idea. Don't. She's saying, you know, the the post World War One generation is lost, but I think he's arguing, at least in that work, you know. Yeah, we are. We're sort of lost. You know, as Fitzgerald says, all gods, all wars fought, all gods dead. Um, just kind of lost, right? Because once you've seen it, you're not exactly sure why you're here. And if I remember right, Sun Also Rises, uh, Hemingway, the, the character uh, wanders essentially with a with a band of friends uh, in you know to Spain. You know it's post World War One. They're they're watching bullfights. They're getting drunk. They're they're lost. They're trying to figure out like what what comes next. What am I all about? What's life all about? That's a good synopsis. Um, and uh, you know, of course, it ends. That's almost like a Kerouac theme, right? I, w- I would think more of Kerouac than Hemingway with that. Um, well, that was Hemingway's first novel. In our time, was his first book, right? But then, I guess you could debate whether it, some people consider it to be a novel, the collection of short, short stories. Short, yeah. But um, yeah, that was his shot out of the cannon. Um, so Hemingway himself was a flawed guy. Right. I mean, uh, what 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 were the personality traits that that he possessed? He says, you know, every great artist has got his downside, um, to my eye. Um, and uh, so, what 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 were some of the the good parts of him besides the fact he's a fantastic writer, and a very American figure as well? Right. Um, it's funny you're drawn to Fitzgerald and Hemingway, who, who I would say are the two most um, sort of quintessential American writers of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you th- those names are evocative of a very specific style, fashion, America. Time, as great, time period. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are no, you know, we don't know who our writers are now, right? I mean, John Grisham, uh, you know, Dan Brown. I mean, you know, they, these are not people who walk the streets and people like, you know, Brad Thor, you know, he tweeted something yesterday that pissed everybody off. I mean, you know, but we don't look to our writers as like rock stars like Hemingway, you know. I completely agree. Um, I guess it's the advent of TV and, and uh, the Internet has made fiction writers less of a force than they were back then. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to get off on too too big of a tangent here, but, you know, I was teaching True Detective the first season because it's, it's written by a you know, fiction writer, but um, yeah, I think television is moving into a you know medium that uh, it's hard for some fiction to compete. Really, that brings up another good thing. Um, I used to teach the book, and then I'd show the movie of the book, and watch them be disappointed. Right, so I think the perfect example of this is Catch Twenty Two. The movie of Catch-22 absolutely misses, by and large, the beauty of that book. It, and it, it was Buck Henry's interpretation of the book, like it, it's always going to be something like that. But I don't like the movie Catch-22, um, and I love the book, you know. Well, I think I figured why that is inevitably true, right? In, in French, you call it mise-en-scene, and it's... Uh, essentially you creating the setting. So if you've read the book already, you've created 
you know what Nick Carraway looks like, right? You know what Daisy looks like. You know what Jay Gatsby looks like. And I'm, you know, a, no director, no actor can get in your head and extrapolate every one of those details. So it's going to fail you as the reader. Um, which also, if we're talking about therapeutic reasons, you know, why to read literature, I think that's the reason because nobody's going to get in your head. So it's just you and the book. Yeah. So how much more time do you have on the faculty here? How many? How many? Are you two years into your tour here? I'm, uh, this is my second year, and I have at least a third. Okay, good. Well, we look forward to seeing you here on the podcast whenever you can make it across Hospital Point to come see us. Yeah, it's been um, fun. It's a great talk. And uh, yeah. um, look, again, keep, keep, we... Keep writing for us, and for all of uh, you know the JOs out there, young people, uh, it's a great example. Uh, you know, Lieutenant Seuss, uh, you know, working here, Navy SEAL, uh, writing for proceedings uh, on our podcast, and and only on the proceedings podcast we have a seal speaking French. That that just doesn't happen anywhere else. I, I did do that. Didn't you I? did, yeah, and it's it's perfectly within the bounds of the proceedings podcast. So we're out of time for this week. Again, look for the current issue of proceedings in your mailbox, or if you're a digital only member, check it out online at usni.org. Um, and we'll see you again next week at the same time. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.